Hello, welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. Uh, today is the season finale of season three. Uh, this is my choice, Chris, wasn't it? Yeah. I think. Yeah, I, I guess it was. We chose this so long ago that I forgot <laughs> like I was choosing these, and it feels like a group choice almost. Uh, so we're going to be doing uh, Shane Black's The Nice Guys, which came out, what, five years ago. Uh, it's a movie that I loved since the moment it came out. And it's just something I want to revisit because I feel like a lot of people missed it. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people are coming back to it now, especially like people who do podcasts are all doing podcast episodes about this. I feel like, so I wanted to get our hat in the ring and kind of give our viewpoint on why I think it's an interesting film. And we also have a special guest with us. Uh, we have Gary from the cinema shock podcast. Uh, Gary, you want to say hello and maybe, uh, talk about um, Cinema Shock and what you guys do on, on that podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, I want you to know I, I am really grateful for you asking me to be on. And uh, this is, I, I thought so much of it. This is as sober as I've ever been recording a podcast. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, I, I, love I have a beer next to me, but I, I, I was trying to keep it professional. Um, yeah, no, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we we uh, we're pretty similar to you guys, actually. I mean, yeah. we 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 kind of uh, similar similarly trace the life of a film. Uh, we've we've started doing though, like a we we kind of pick a topic and stick with it. I we, yeah. we you know we we kind of uh, do a series. So I think you you found us from uh, our Shane Black series we did at Christmas time. Yeah, we did Black Christmas. Yeah. yeah, we did Black Christmas. So. Uh, since Shane always has seems to have like a Christmas vibe in his movies, at least right. in a scene or two. No, absolutely. So how I mean, let's start out with just talking about like, when did we all see this this movie? Nice guys. I saw it, I think, in the theater, uh, maybe the first couple of weeks when it came out. I went to a trip to like, I think, North Carolina. And my buddy wanted to see a movie. And he's like, let's go see this. And like, he was sort of indifferent about it. I didn't know Shane Black all that well. Oh. Uh, so I didn't really know what to expect when I went to go see it. Um, but I just love Gosling and uh, Russell Crowe. I just just flew off the screen. I, I thought it was a very fascinating movie. I think when I first left the theater, I was like, oh, that's pretty good. I enjoyed that. But once it hit like HBO, then I just watched it over and over and over yeah. again. There's something about it that is, I don't know what it is. It's kind of there's an infectiousness about it. So what 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 led you to go see it if you like weren't keyed into the Shane Black aspect of it? Because that's the whole reason I saw it in the theater. Well, I think I loved the trailer. The oh, trailer okay. I thought was fantastic. Uh, I like Ryan Gosling a lot, uh, and I think he's I don't know I, I see everything that he's in. So I think I just saw the 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 comedy between him and Russell Crowe, and I really thought it was kind of old school, a little bit of a throwback. Uh, and I was just like, let's go check this out. Um, Gary and Chris, when did you guys first see this movie? Yeah, I saw I saw it in the theater um, by myself. Uh, it was definitely one of those movies where, like, oh. my friends uh, weren't really that excited about it. Like, I like I definitely had friends that would like totally enjoy this movie if they gave it a shot. But it was such a kind of slight, you know, ride into the movie theaters that I think even the trailer didn't really catch anybody anybody's attention except for people like you dan like for the most yeah. part it was mostly like i i i really enjoyed iron man 3 and had been paying attention to shane black since i grew up with the lethal weapon franchise and uh i was excited to see him 
have these two guys team up, then I think it was just like a really perfect uh, duo for a buddy movie, especially since uh, not only I, I agree, Ryan Gosling was a, a huge draw. It was he's he was he was kind of like, uh, I don't know, really hitting his stride in the mid 2010s. And he, he hasn't been uh, since La La Land. It's been kind of downhill for him. So there was a huge buzz about him, but also I was really waiting for the uh, Russell Crowe Redemption Hour, I guess. <laughs> I had uh, kind of uh, uh, really liked his work in the late 90s with LA Confidential. Um, and then in the 2000s, I kind of lost track of him, even though he was Oscar's darling. I very much disliked Beautiful Mind and Cinderella yeah. Man. Uh, and so to see him kind of going back to rough and tumble mode was was really appealing how about you gary i'm i'm gonna blow your mind and i'm gonna also ruin my movie nerd cred here (laughs) yes we love this we love doing this we we, uh we did the whole series on shane black right but we went through lethal weapon all the way up until kiss kiss bang bang telling the story of shane black but i saw this movie for the first time two days ago no what? way that's awesome though that's like a yeah. totally different perspective yeah i so what, absolutely what was your initial what was your initial feelings about it as a shane black someone who did a whole series on shane black movies on your podcast yeah what what happened there was i think i just uh i had skipped it in the theater for some reason i just didn't go see it and then it was just one of those things where it just never i don't know i just never picked it to sit down and watch yeah and so uh i guess um I, I I thought I think as we were discussing it, I was like, "All right, well, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna check this out whenever we get around to it on the show or something. I'll just save sure, it." And yeah. uh, and then you guys showed up, and I was like, "Well, I guess now's as good a time as any." And I got to be honest with you, yeah. uh, you know, cards on the table. This actually might be my favorite Shane Black movie. Oh, wow, really? that's interesting. That yeah, is really I, interesting. I, I like fun. it just it hits you right away, right? Yeah, I I loved it. It was everything I grew to love. Like when we were doing the Shane Black series, it was like it all culminated in this movie. I was like, oh, wow, he really feels like he got everything he wanted to do all in one place. Yeah, it feels like yeah everything kind of hit its stride in this film. Uh, just to give the kind of a log line, uh, Ryan Gosling plays essentially a down as luck private eye in the late 1970s Los Angeles. Uh, Russell Crowe plays uh, kind of an enforcer, I guess you call a goon. Uh, who hurts people for a living. Uh, They kind of cross paths as uh, this young woman named Amelia uh, disappears and they kind of have to find her and look for her. And it's kind of just that misadventure uh, as these two PIs running through uh, the the late seventies night Los Angeles. Um, And it's, would you call it noir? I guess it's noir, right? And what do you guys think? It's slight. I think, I think that's partly going back to what I was saying when it came into the theaters, it felt kind of, like uh, from a distance um there's definitely noir uh qualities to it nuances to it but it still feels very much like just as much indebted to the the shane black of yore of the like the lethal weapon buddy cop uh dynamic and also kind of like the straightforward like i had forgotten how many like really well choreographed fight scenes are in this movie and so it's it's kind of straight ahead action too, in addition to just being perhaps his most overtly comic movie since I don't know, Last Action Hero. Like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is probably my favorite 
but even that one like has and he he he's uh he's had a lot of different like um dabblings in kind of trying to mix his Shane Black uh detective stories with sure. um other genres and this one just feels like straight up like I mean Gosling mentions it uh when talking about why he picked um the movie to do it's basically an Abbott and Costello movie but just with more swears and violence yeah exactly i don't want to um, take anything away from kiss kiss bang bang by the way because that movie is fantastic too yes. but uh it's uh yeah i mean it, it it you're right uh everything you just said there um chris i think it just feels like he got like the mix right on mm-hmm. everything there's definitely mm-hmm. always i think with him like noir elements to it i mean uh everything i remember reading about him all the time we were prepping for him i mean he just he like grew up he says he basically like gave himself dyslexia reading detective novels and stuff like that like that's (laughs) that's what he did his whole life so i think he's always gonna have those elements but he got like the uh kiss kiss has it too but i don't know for some reason like this was just like a really perfect blend of like action and comedy and just everything all at once it was it was great yeah, and it's, you know, it has all his sort of trademarks. I mean, for someone who doesn't know who Shane Black is or where he comes from, you know, what are sort of the highlights that we would want to hit on his career or sort of his path to nice guys? Like, what would you guys call out as like, if, you know, if I'm a Zoomer, I don't know anything about Shane Black. Like, what do you think are the the key points to get across about his career? Well, one of my favorite uh, stories that Ryan Gosling tells in the press tour, um, or actually, I think Shane Black tells this. Is that uh, you know most people that had wanted to that like sought out him or decided to do something because his name was attached to it? It was always because of Lethal Weapon. And for me, definitely yeah. like growing up, it, Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon Two, and all the uh, sequels that come after that don't exist basically. Um, but Gosling, the reason he uh, he even says it like in response to him is like, oh yeah, the Monster Squad guy. Sure, I'll do that. And so that was his other flick that he had put out it was like a very zany b movie uh from the same year that lethal weapon came out and while it have definitely has a cult following it was basically a footnote in his career um but i definitely think that uh both of those films that's where to start and if you if you you can see kind of like the like even with the the young characters if you because monster squad's about like a group of young kids that are seeking out monsters hunting them down and very much the dialogue with both um the uh angry rice who plays uh gosling's daughter in the nice guys as well as the the kid that they come across when they find the burned down house um like it you forget how not just well that shane black writes um grown-ups but how he writes kids and you see that also in iron man 3 uh too and so i think that uh, he his his first two features really set the tone for his career and i i think nice guys kiss kiss and lethal weapon and monster squad be where to where to go i like all his movies but those are the four and iron man 3 is probably one of the better mcu films as well gary what do you think what do you sort of what would you call out about shane black if someone doesn't really know anything about him like what what is it about him do you think uh is interesting or makes him kind of unique um, my favorite thing about Shane, uh, the more I learned about him, was just that he he was a guy who uh, you'd probably say too much too fast. Um, yeah. 
like early on in his career. Um, he was, you know, Monster Squad was something he worked on with like his his college buddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they they wrote it together. Fred Decker, um, he who ended up directing it and everything. But Shane Shane Shane's a guy that his hands have been on so many different things. But yeah. you know, when he wrote Lethal Weapon, and it was a time where Hollywood was just looking for something different and they would um buy these spec scripts that were just like an idea of a script they would go ahead and pay out like a a massive amounts of money like there was just you know it was the 80s in hollywood and you know probably everybody's coked out or whatever and they're of course throwing money at things but he gets lethal weapon and he makes a ton of money off of it and uh at the time you know he the the weird thing about him is he's he's a young guy and he all of a sudden i mean the 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 most apt comparison i could probably give him is when lethal weapon sells he becomes like essentially what you think of with like a tarantino like he yeah, was absolutely. kind of yeah. the early version of that and so he was the hot name and so people wanted his stuff but he he does lethal weapon it's a hit it's huge and then you know, immediately they want to do Lethal Weapon 2. But what happens for him, and sorry if I ramble too much here. No, you go for it, man. That's good. He uh, he he goes into Lethal Weapon 2, and he has an idea. And all he cares about, he's very passionate about his writing process. He writes Lethal Weapon 2, and he has to deal with it in Lethal Weapon 1. You know, he gets Joel Silver behind him, and, and, and it works out pretty well. Things get changed. He has to accept that Hollywood does that to your script. It's frustrating. But when it gets to Lethal Weapon 2, uh, he has rigs like Mel Gibson's character dying in Lethal Weapon 2. <laughs> and the studios immediately step in. They're like, you're not going to do that. You're not going to do any of this. <laughs> like, that's not going to happen because we got a franchise. Yeah, now. Totally. And uh, so he ends up in fights with them and he learns that Hollywood's a big machine and it's going to bury him. Like, he doesn't get a say. Like, they buy a script and it's not his anymore. Yeah. And he gets depressed. So then he's he's a very sensitive guy. So yeah, he, he comes across as super sensitive in a lot of his interviews. Yeah, so he disappears. He disappears yeah. for like two, three years, something like that, before he finally decides to give it another go and uh, comes back with like long kiss goodnight. I think he does the acting gig in the middle of, uh, or he, he, he gets like some smaller like script doctoring stuff or whatever. But yeah. anyway, he, um, he does the long kiss goodnight and people still remember his name, at least at this point. He makes like yeah. $4 million. Yeah. And, he, and he's not the guy who's uh, who's like begging for it. it. His agents are just looking out for him because, I mean, I remember reading all the articles about Hollywood agents. I found like some old article that I dug up where he talks about just sitting in a room where his agents are like, just go home. We'll call you. Yeah. We'll sit down and these these negotiations happen over hours and they finally just call and they're just like, all right, you made four million. And he's oh, like, geez. what? That's crazy. <laughs> and, uh, but but all his friends like abandon him like yeah. they hate him. And all of a sudden people are like burying him. They're just like this hack, this hot shot, like this guy, like who does, who does he think he is? He's, you know, and he's in the meanwhile, like kind of what am I supposed to do? Say no to $4 million. Yeah, exactly. Like, what yeah. if I, you know, like they offered 4 million and uh, anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm running on, but, 
but he's a guy who's very sensitive to these things. He ends up burying himself in like booze and parties and uh, the stuff that Hollywood has. But but this happens to him regularly through his career. So he's a guy who, if you think back to Lethal Weapon, could have started very early on and had a ton of movies. But he makes a movie. Hollywood buries him and he gets miserable and depressed and disappears for years at a time. And then he pops back up and nobody remembers who he is. He has to remake himself. It's, <laughs> it's a, it's a weird story with Shane Black. Yeah. Yeah. And no, absolutely like the, the, the whole like spec script market stuff uh, back in the nineties is just so fascinating. Does that still happen today? Do people buy spec, spec scripts for like $4 million or whatever? Like it just doesn't seem like that, 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 that has continued on at all. And then after Long Kiss, do you guys Long Kiss Goodnight? Did you guys like that movie? I hated that movie. The actual result of it, not the script was probably okay. The actual movie I thought was terrible. Yeah, there's. I I saw it back in high school though. There's right, and yeah, I haven't seen it for years. But there, there's good scenes, and like once again, he knows how to pair people together. Gina Davis and Samuel Jackson's an awesome pairing. But Yeah. yeah, it just it's so overwrought and super convoluted. It definitely feels like somebody. It was written by somebody who buried themselves in a lot of booze. Yeah, he he got to be like he was far enough along on that when he got to be like a producer there, so he got to keep some of the violence that he wanted in yep. it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I'm the same as you guys. I, I was not a huge fan of Long Kiss. It's it's yeah. lower on my list of his movies. I don't hate it, but it's uh it's definitely not my favorite of his. And uh, it, it yeah, I don't know. It, it, and, and around that time, I mean, he ends up getting you know he does get to keep the violence, but like. It uh still they same deal. I mean, they end up changing a bunch of stuff about what it, they that's do what with it. It seems they, like yeah, he, he had to fight with them to even have like Gina Davis in there. I remember as we went really? over that one, just that you know they wanted like Sly Stallone at one point or something. <laughs> you know, they were like, "Well, it wasn't going to be a girl." And he's like, "It's kind of the point." Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, no, totally. To answer. Anyway. To answer your question, Dan, about uh, spec scripts, just some quick oh, yeah. Googling finds us, uh, of course, how lest we forget, um, Max Landis uh, sold Bright for $3 million in uh, 2016, so same happens. year as the nice guys, but it, uh. but it's going down. It's going down a lot. Uh, and obviously, 2020 is kind of an anomaly due to the pandemic, but uh, according to nofilmschool.com, there were only 25 spec spec scripts sold compare that to 10 years prior in 2010 uh, there were 55 2011 it was 110 so uh it, it 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 is dwindling i think and i think perhaps the only reason that a big sale like the max landis bright script happened is because of who his father is and who, how much of an asshole he is You're this is going to be a right. dumb question but like spec script what do we really mean by that I'm not going to assume that I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> what is <laughs> it's like? What an outline? Uh, is it a- essentially? Yeah, it's yeah. like it's like an idea for a movie. Like it's uh, you know you the the way I understand it, and Chris, you might know better, but it's uh, it, it's like you're you're basically giving a brief summary of what happens in this movie. It's essentially oh, like what will occur, right? <laughs> and it's unsolicited, it, yeah. <laughs> i know basically yeah just like a pitch just to <clears throat> oh man so he so he does long kiss good night 1996 gets that four million dollars sounds like he also kind of produced it and then he disappears right he disappears for nine years and then comes <laughs> back eventually with kiss kiss bang bang in 2005 which is his directorial debut it really sounds like um joel silver is kind of his guardian angel would you mm-hmm. guys agree with that 
it just oh, seems yeah, like 100%. he like he's a mentor he's he's backed uh, kiss kiss bang bang uh i think that's one of the reasons he got obviously uh robert Darren jr and iron man 3 that whole connection and joel silver backed you know the nice guys obviously um does i here's a question does shane black have a career without joel silver what do you guys think is he well, is it one of those relationships or does shane black find <laughs> another way Maybe not in today, but I mean, I think one yeah. of another key figure in Black's life uh, in the mid 2000s and probably the other reason that Kiss Kiss happened and his directorial career happened is because of James L. Brooks, which is yeah, essentially yeah. the reason you have the romance subplot in um, Kiss Kiss. And so I think I mean, I think there's probably a lot of people that acted as like the, you know, the the guy that breaks Black's fall and helps him get back up again. Um, and I think it's definitely silver with the nice guys, but with a good assist of having like two of the biggest bankable male movie stars uh, also want to sign on to it. Um, so I, there's a lot. But yes, yeah, silver is a huge um, component because not only uh, did he take care of uh, nice guys, but he's the reason that he started back in 87 with Lethal Weapon, too. Well, you can go yeah. all the way back with like silver uh, from... From yeah, the Lethal Weapon franchise, he got him the Last Boy Scout. He got oh, right. him. Like, mm-hmm. He um yeah, I mean Silver's Silver's a huge part. Not not to write off Brooks either, by the way, but yeah, um I think he has a career. But I think when they got to Kiss Kiss, you know when when that script was going around, he had options. Yeah. Um, or actually, maybe it was Long Kiss. I'm sorry, I can't even remember. But he, there was one of them. He he had an option to make more money. Yeah. And he went with Silver or whatever studio Silver was working with. He went with them because Silver was there. Like it was like a payback thing. And uh but but he also, you know, in these times, like he when he would get depressed and drunk and everything, that's where he sought out, you know, he he saw something in Robert Downey Jr. because uh totally, around yeah. the time of Kiss Kiss, like he saw the same guy who was like, you know, dragged down by Hollywood yep. and mm-hmm drugged out and all of this stuff and needed a redemption story and it worked and robert downey jr even you know uh paid him back in spades by uh, getting him on iron man 3 and that opened up the world to him now i mean shane black's shane black and he's probably just as busy as ever now yeah um one of the things about nice guys and kind of a similar trajectory of just this up and down and long journey um this thing took 13 years to get made apparently that's what shane black says it could be just a story one thing yeah. to note on this if you want to have a good time watch the press tour of the nice guys because it's literally just shane black joel silver uh, russell crowe and ryan gosling just joking with each other uh the entire like every appearance that i've seen on every show they're just like having a really good time um but what was interesting about one of the stories that came out of one of these interviews was that Nice Guys was originally supposed to be uh, present day. wasn't supposed to take place in the 70s. Uh, it was supposed to be a TV show. He pitched it first to CBS. Uh, and Shane Black basically says standards and practices was just going to kill it, he says. Uh, took it to HBO. HBO is like, nope, we're not going to do it. Uh, and eventually it was Joel Silver who said, you know, you know, you did this in the 70s. He probably kind of brought it along and kind of championed it which is kind of a continuous story in uh, Black's career is that Joel's definitely on his side and pushing these things forward. And eventually this thing clicks. Why do you think the 70s took hold with the, the moneyed people here? 
Mm. Like, why do you think it was that setting that convinced someone to give this movie? What was the budget on this? Like, probably what, 30 million something? Uh, 50 million, which is huge. That is huge. That's a big budget for a movie. I didn't even know it was that big. It looks like it on screen. Like, it's all, the, the period piece aspect of it is really well done. But why do you think, well, one, why do you think it didn't work as a TV show on CBS and HBO? HBO especially, because I think it could have worked. Uh, and why do we have this 1970s LA setting? Why do you think yeah. that clicked with the people who are going to back it? Well, I, I I have to say that I was not surprised about the the TV show thing, and I didn't catch this yeah. maybe when I saw it in theaters because you know that's a different experience. But watching it home on my TV was definitely like a feeling where like oh, I wish I could have a mystery with these guys every week. And <sighs> exactly. So yeah. when I go back and read our notes that you put together for us and see that, it's like oh man, that'd been so rad. Maybe you weren't. You couldn't quite get uh, the star power there, though. Definitely, like, when was the first season of True Detective? Like a, a year later. So uh, it it you're before you, like, right around then. Yeah. So like, uh, I mean, maybe it was just like a a, a glut problem. Like, there's so many crime detective shows, um, yeah. especially with modern settings. But I do also feel like Black has this, and I think this is why he worked so well with Iron Man three because he has a really populist vibe to him yeah. that is very much married with like the uh, ultraviolet edginess. And so he's able to really walk this fine line. So it's like, if there was a place that would have been open to it, I feel like he would have fit more at home on like, it sounds stupid, but like TBS or something where <laughs> yeah, like you could there. have, you could push <laughs> standards and practices, but also still be kind of, you know, uh, for the masses. Um, but I think ultimately, I mean, He's he's a movie guy. Yeah, he has dabbled in television, but he there's there's a there's a certain cinematic quality to the seventies, right? You don't have a lot, yeah. and, and so like when you're able to do that, you're recalling everything from Boogie Nights to Inherent Vice, which is just a couple of years earlier, uh, and especially with the comedy aspect, like I think that ultimately it's good that it landed there, and um. I don't know. I think that there's I'd be curious to know to hear what you think, Gary. What is the what is the ultimate reason that out of all the different periods because like, I feel like this could have also worked if it was an 80s uh crime film. Yeah, if it was a yeah. even going back to like 50s and make I mean Ryan Gosling probably looked really good in a derby hat or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you just stole exactly what I was thinking, man. I I, I I'm kind of on the same page uh, on all of that. I I definitely at least think this should should have been or should be a franchise of some sort. Like you yeah. could do sequels to this movie um, if you're not going to do a TV show. I I I, he I hesitate with TV show except if it were like an HBO Max thing or something right, because right. there there's just you know he's he's violent and just. Yeah. You know, he he's just who he is on these movies that he makes. So it um it feels like you'd be trying to rein him in too much to try to get him on like a network or something. But he uh I you know, I, I guess the only thing I can think of with the seventies, and it doesn't discount the eighties, like you just said, is that it just felt like a time where I don't know, it just fits the vibe like that you would still have like a hard-nosed detective story yeah, yeah. sort of thing going on and it could be as wild as this movie is with just like drugs and craziness and all of that stuff like it just fits 
right. the time and I, period. And I wonder if like work. like the pornography uh, element was still in the the concept for the modern day version. But like, I mean, I I learned so <laughs> way more than I ever thought I would learn about the history of pornography watching uh, David Simon's <laughs> the show The Deuce. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It very much and like this is this isn't just seventies. This is seventy eight. So this is once again very much like during that transition where porn is also like transcending from uh like subculture to mainstream. And I that since that's the vibe that black fits on perfectly, it, it makes sense. It just feels like one of those serendipitous things where they're like, it's gotta be in the mid to late seventies. And then you've got the protest element too. It's just there's all these elements that piece together so well. It feels like, well, why wouldn't it be in 1978 at the end of the day? Yeah, he it feels does. like it definitely has that like Hollywood chews you up and spits you out mm-hmm, thing too mm-hmm. that he would have familiarity with, like at least, especially for these like actresses and stuff that you see like around the party. And, oh yeah, and that sort absolutely. of thing. I mean, he does one of the things that I think maybe one of the negative reviews that I came across. Uh, I think it was from, I think, The New Yorker. Um, I don't think I put it in the notes, though, but I, I was just reading it randomly. And you're talking about, like, shoving in all these different stories. You're talking about the transition of porn from subculture to mainstream, from film to video. Um, this, you know, the smog situation in Los Angeles. And, like, mm-hmm. you know, Shane Black has these sort of pull quotes that has sort of interviews about, like, what he thought about, um, you know, this sort of grandiose uh idea that los angeles was sort of you know this once glitzy and glamorous place and now it became like a dime storm and gritty um why do you think it doesn't collapse with all of those different ideas it really is like a a stew of ideas Mm -hmm. and like some of them don't really i think connect like the main plot it's kind of irrelevant, right? right. Like the yeah. whole like catalytic converter. Isn't that like this whole movie's about? Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> when you look back on it, it's like, well, yeah, I guess it is about that, but that's not why we, that's not why we're engaged. Right. Why are yeah. we engaged? I mean, to me, it's, it's Gosling and Crow kind of going back and forth with each other. Um, and then angry rice is phenomenal in this. Like mm-hmm. she really anchors the movie in a lot of ways. And gives it this sense of, I can't remember somebody who said that's like this sense of innocence. Like she's the one, she's kind of the audience looking on these two kind of buffoons um, going back and forth, trying to figure out this convoluted, which that's where you bring in the noir stuff, right? This yep. incredibly convoluted plot that you couldn't even understand if you watched it a hundred times. Uh, but that's kind of the point. It's so convoluted. You can never untangle all of it. And I think even at the end, there is this sort of uh, forget about it, Jake, it's Chinatown moment. Where it's like they're not going to get the big people involved here, right? And the small people are going to get hurt and going to get killed. And that's just the way it is. And that's kind of a definitely a noir staple. But I think, you know, one of the things that fascinates me is that, you know, that negative comment of this thing is so stuffed with ideas. Why do you think it doesn't fall apart? Like, what do you, what do you guys think is the reason that it kind of stays together, that it is, does feel cohesive, that does have a really, strong rewatchability factor to it um what what holds it all together do you guys think i mean i think the the big thing that i took out of uh, a lot of black's pull quotes for this movie um kind of goes back to why perhaps you know kiss kiss was his kind of turning point film and now here he's been sober a while and so yeah i i mean that i i think this movie would have 
felt a lot more like Long Kiss Goodnight or even Last Boy Scout if or Last Action Hero at, at absolute worst um, <laughs> if he didn't have the wherewithal to really think about all the different elements and he's really it, like you were saying earlier Gary it feels like almost like this uh, pinnacle moment for him where he's pulled all of those bits and pieces that are broken in him still or that are from his past and then doing it with this sense of clarity and with film noir like that's one of the fun things about it right is that it has all these convoluted uh elements but it's almost it's smoke and mirrors for what is at its heart a relationship story which is another reason that like black has i think been successful uh maybe more critically than commercially but definitely um artistically is that no matter what like violent plot joke uh, scatological thing is going on in the script at its heart there's some kind of relationship that just works that just you want to that you just it's undeniable and the nice thing about this movie is that it does a kind of sneaky thing because it has the buddy cop element or buddy pi element i do think it's important that these characters are not cops in to- for a movie yeah. in the mid to late 2010s um yeah. but also like you mentioned dan the relationship between gosling and his daughter like if you didn't yeah. have that relationship in the film, I don't mm-hmm. know if I would be in as lo- as much in love with it as I am. I think yeah. that that's like this really well crafted element that dovetails really well with also the burgeoning friendship of of uh, Jackson and uh, um uh what's it what's Gosling's character's name? Uh, it's escaping uh, me. Marsh. 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 Thank you. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think what it is, man, is it, it's it's uh, or men. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's um, you know, a lot of people tried to write him off for forever with Shane Black because because of the violence or because of the vulgarity or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like people are like, ah, he's just you know, he's overblown and he's dumbed down Hollywood, yada yada. Yeah, here we are all this time later and this movie like gets you know 90 something percent on rotten tomatoes or something um and it's it's because there's there's more to him than that and one of the, one of the things that i think that he's really good at i mean when you every shane black movie has like certain things like there's uh christmas somewhere uh yeah. there's there's uh uh generally two opposite characters uh that meet for some reason i mean that at least two uh depending on if you watch uh the predator or whatever but <laughs> yeah. the uh you know with with him you know if you go back to lethal weapon it's danny glover and mel gibson or samuel jackson and gina davis or it's bruce willis and damon wayans or mm-hmm. it's uh you know robert downey jr and val kilmer it's you know like he always he loves that aspect of it and the part that he cares the most at about i think always is making those people people that you invest in and like people that you wouldn't think you normally would because he makes them pretty sleazy most of the time oh yeah but but make something enough likable about them that you get drawn in to see them succeed generally there's always like a smart ass kid too like daniel harris is in last boy scout um she plays bruce willis's daughter um, I'm trying to, I'm going to fail on I, it, like Danny Glover has kids and lethal weapon yeah. that make jokes and make funny moments and stuff like that. He, he likes that. He likes to show you the family side of things. And, um, 
And then he, but, but I remember a quote from reading about him back then. He just always said like disparate characters make good stories. And yep. so he, <laughs> that's a good line. Yeah. Yeah. He, he just, he loves having those kind of people come together for some reason they're drawn together and people that might not normally get along, um, you know, any, 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 and without saying too much gets you everything you need to know. Like Russell Crowe, uh, he's Healy or whatever. Like he's this like tough guy has a code of honor. Um, I always love that about characters. I don't like, even if, if it's, you know, uh, not exactly correct in the way that he views the world, but he has this like code that he follows. And uh, Marsh is this guy who's just down on his luck. And he has a daughter who's worried about him. who thinks he's a failure and wants him to get back. Right. But he's just kind of waiting on something to happen. And he's actually got like a, an ability to be a detective, but he's just like drunk all the time. He's almost <laughs> like in like Dr. Sleep when like Danny's like just drunk all the time. So he can hide the shining. Like Ryan Gosling's yeah, yeah, yeah. doing this with his detective abilities. Like he's, he's just failing, like just hoping something changes about his life without doing anything. And then these guys just like get thrown together to, to make something happen that makes them both. I don't know. I, I, I feel like you get behind them. And so yeah. the rest of the story is just, it's all filler almost to like, you're yeah. just like, you want to see these guys succeed. And then at the yeah. end, they, you know, they kind of come together, right? There's the ad for the joint detective service and sort of, you know, it's Set kind of like a marriage franchise. at the end of comedy, yeah. right? It, goes, <laughs> it, like, it all works out in the end. Yeah. yeah. What's interesting too, like, I think one of the most interesting, interesting things about this film and the, one of the reasons that I chose it was the reception to it. Mm. And, you know, okay, it gets released in 2016 in May. Like, is this a summer movie? I mean, this does not come across as a summer movie to me. Um, but it's put out May 20th, 2016 by Warner Brothers. You know, this is a big release. That's one of the things I remember about this, too. There was a lot of advertisement. And, you know, only does, what, $11 million on its opening weekend. Ends up getting $60 million worldwide, which sounds pretty decent, but it's not on a $50 million budget. No. And I guarantee you the marketing budget for this domestically alone was $30 bucks. So, like, you're talking, like, this thing did not make hardly any money and probably lost a little bit for Warner Brothers, um, despite the critics loving it. 91% run tomato score, 89% from top critics. Metacritic's a little bit lower at 70. But those, are, I think, are all pretty good scores. Um, Rotten Tomato audience score is seventy nine percent. You know, and I think the the most telltale um, survey result here is sort of that opening night audience, which I cinema score. They only do a single poll on that one showing opening night Friday night. It's like twelve selected markets, fourteen something like that across the country. But that's where you really get an idea of what the average viewer who showed up opening night thought about this. A B minus for Nice Guys, which is not good. A movie like this, um, you would expect at least a B plus to sort of have a good performance, uh, and you really want like an A minus A, uh, but those are somewhat rare, somewhat rare. Um, so something did not click uh, mm -hmm. with the marketing, with the, the time that it opened, with the audience that showed up opening night. You know, I, what do you guys think that? Why did this not pop off like it could have? You think? Because I'm an a hole and made. I didn't go. I didn't go see it. <laughs> it's solely yeah, Gary. Who are you fault. to talk, Gary? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I'm really curious about because this is why 
I'm so fascinated by this movie is that I think it, there is, and we've talked about this, there's a lot to love about this. Yeah. There's so much to love about it. And I've watched it so many times over the last five years. Why didn't it pop off? Why didn't it click with the general public when this came out in 2016? You know, that, that it, it was a very strange beginning to that summer, I remember, because yeah. that was also uh, Independence Day Resurgence. Coming out and bombing and like there was like the so there was it was retread uh, city, first of all, but then also you had obviously the the sequels and Dawn of Justice and uh, live action Jungle Book. So like we are deep in the throes of like regurgitating nostalgia that fails and regurgitating nostalgia that dominates. And there's no place for a movie like the nice guys in that realm unfortunately um i think that also uh, just coming back to like how i reacted watching it on the small screen for the first time since i saw it on the big screen it's like that was also very much uh a time when people wanted their detective stories weekly and yeah bingeable and you know it there's so many crowd pleasing elements in this film that you would hope that there would be some kind of market for it but i really wonder like if it was a tv show and you did have bankable stars and a service that you know put some elbow grease into promoting it um if there would have been more of a uh more of a way through for 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 shane black but also it's like it doesn't even matter because the guy's got a million guardian angels like robert downey jr that <laughs> plucks him to do iron man 3 so yeah, that's true and, then, and do uh and then he i, I don't know if it if who was involved in getting him to reboot the predator but uh and there, there was even like a a slight scandal with that and um now he's doing a, a movie with the rock he's uh doing an adaptation of the old pulp character doc savage so like he even if he's bombing he's not doing badly for himself he can he can it's it's goes back to so many the common thread on this podcast is like people aren't uh, really uh looking to make money when they're making looking to make good movies and yeah. vice versa <laughs> he can kind of ride his ticket now too so he you know he can pick and choose i mean downey kind of gave him that spot i think finally like just uh the ultimate repayment for <laughs> restarting downey's career is uh robert downey jr is one of the hottest actors in the world and so he you know made it so shane black never has to worry about it anymore as long as he stays sober and doesn't get depressed and disappear for six years or something <laughs> but what about the predator though i mean how bad was that well he's I mean, working I, with I, the rock right now i mean this is what i'm saying this is pretty yeah, it's just the predator like, oh, happened man. and that was something else and <laughs> oh god the predator is just like i, I think I've, I've seen it all the way through once but i had to like break it up because i was like this is terrific no this i is gave up on really it really bad this is <laughs> yeah so bad. yeah I'm, I'm interested to like one day revisit it because some something had to happen there there's there's things <laughs> i can look back on it and i'm like obviously this had some shane black stuff like I remember the group of guys and uh, the one girl like being in the hotel room, like, you know, just the the dialogue that had the yeah. sharp dialogue that Shane Black, Black is really good at. But um, I don't know, man. I remember seeing that movie and 
the ending feeling like the CG was incomplete. Yeah, and, it was uh, just, I kind of expected it to be a mess, but it was way worse than I thought it was. <laughs> I mean, it was quite bad. Predator is so, my jam too, so it was very disappointing. I, it's like, I mean, Predator is fantastic, the original. Yes. Um, so where, where do we think the nice guys is going to end up? Like, is this going to be like a cult film looking at letterboxd, which is my favorite thing to look at for like longevity, um, 76, which is actually a really high score on letterboxd. Um, so I think there's some hope and like on Reddit, this movie comes up like once a week on the R movie subreddit. Basically, the post is like, "Have you guys ever seen the Nice Guys? It's really good." Like, it's like the same <laughs> post over and over again. Yeah. So I think that there's like there's hope for this movie. Kind of, I don't know if you call it a cult film. I guess you can't really call it a cult film. Um, but it's like one of those it hidden gems, and it comes yeah. up on all these lists as a hidden gem. I mean, do you think that that's going to be its its sort of long life here? It's going to have a long life, or is it going to sort of disappear completely? Well, I so since I hadn't seen it since the theaters, and then. Yeah. And I had completely forgotten who Margaret Qualley was <laughs> when when I turned this on in 2021. And uh, one of the most popular Letterboxd reviews, I think, is pretty spot on to kind of show the the potential legacy of this movie uh, is from the Letterboxd user Liam. He said, Quentin Tarantino saw this movie and said, wow, that's my aesthetic. That's what I want to achieve and decided in that very moment as the screen went black and the credits rolled to pay homage to this classic and have his ninth and penultimate film, a.k.a. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, also set in L.A. around the 70s following a duo made up of two big Hollywood male stars and most importantly, featuring a barefooted Margaret Qualley. <laughs> It's just facts. I see you, Tarantino. I see you. That's good. That's good. I, I mean, it, um, it feels just feels like this was a layup for Tarantino. And that, that is clever. I mean, <laughs> it, now that you, you put it all out there, it's, uh, yeah, I just watched I that last night again. Once upon a time in Hollywood. <laughs> it's like one of my favorite movies. It's ridiculous. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, Gary, what do you, I mean, do you think there's a long shelf life for this movie or is it going to get refound by people who are, you know, born today? Like, are they going to watch it in 20 years? I feel like Shane Black's lot in life is that he's always going to be uh, the he'll be for nerds like us to talk about. Yeah, exactly. Later. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, we'll, we'll be like, for oh, us. you just saw Kiss Kiss or you just saw the nice guys. <laughs> oh, you should check out this other one that he did. You know, yeah. like uh, he'll 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 survive. Like, it won't be that he fades into obscurity, but he'll he'll be for the uh, the the people like us to talk about. Yeah, the the recommendation, like the the record store clerk. We gotta check this out. Um, right. I love that. Uh, so Gary, tell us what's coming up on uh, Cinema Shock uh, for the next couple of weeks, the next few weeks. What are you guys up to? Uh, we're doing a series right now on Dan O'Bannon. Uh, we were originally going to awesome. call it Hollywood's Secret Weapon. I forget what Justin ended up naming it now, but uh, it's uh, Dan O'Bannon. If uh, you guys don't know him, he he came up through school or through college with John Carpenter and. Uh, worked on his first movie there, but he's he's another one of those guys, a writer who had his hands in everything. I mean, he wrote, he's he's responsible for Alien, and uh, and we just uh, we just covered that. We just covered, uh, God, what did we just cover? It just blows my a mind. Dark just, Star, Dark Star. We did Dark Star. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. we did like a uh, Alien was too much. We did like two parts on alien that's, just because there was, was a perfect film that's why yeah yeah because <laughs> it was a lot to cover and uh coming up we've got you know he ends up going into directing not unlike shane flack like he gets into yeah. return of the living dead which is a cult oh, favorite so much fun i freaking love that movie. yeah he's uh he's all over the place so 
uh yeah dan o'bannon is uh the man he's he's one of those guys that uh never fully gets the credit he deserves and no, nobody quite knows his name except for again nerds like us so yeah, yeah no, so, well, gary we appreciate you coming on man you've been a great guest and anybody who's listening uh absolutely check out um cinema shock it's a phenomenal podcast um Chris, what do we have? What do you have coming up here? This is the season finale. So, what are we doing for season four? When are we coming back? Oof, yeah, we're going to take a little bit of a break, uh, cool off a bit, and return uh, just in time for mid-May and the premiere on Netflix of Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. Which uh, I guess I selected. Is that fair to say? <laughs> it was, it, this is once again. Our, I feel like our premieres and our finales are kind of foregone conclusions uh this is uh just a movie that seems perfect for breaking apart how was it born and then we will definitely be paying attention to how it winds up getting released and received especially now that we've had the great rehabilitation of Zack snyder in the age Uh, of uh the snyder cut i feel terrible (laughs) for choosing that now it's gonna be a disaster uh thanks for listening definitely check out cinema uh cinema shock uh we'll be back in about a month with season four of Film Trace. Mm-hmm.